name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So last week we were talking about why people um, sometimes find it hard to believe. Like, um, uh, like God has given me the real blessing of, of sitting and speaking with people or listening to people honestly who are, uh, you know, being very honest about their faith and saying, Abuna, all my life I've believed, all my life I've gone to church, all my life and so on. But I'm just finding it really, um, I'm finding it really, really hard to believe now. And the summary of what we talked about last week was a lot of the time, um, you know, we had, as children, we had very real faith. We had very real experiences with God. We were really, uh, you know, th- th- those weren't things that were fake. We genuinely really believed in God. Um, uh, and we had experiences that till now we know are, are genuine. Um, but um, uh, we find that the challenges that, that challenge our faith now, we feel are, are bigger than the, than, than the faith that we have. And we're sort of trying to deal with adult-sized problems with our child-sized faith. So we agreed last week together, you and I together, that we're going to both commit ourselves to really growing in our faith, uh, in, in our knowledge of faith, and also in our experience of God day to day, and that God is dynamic. So when someone asks me, you know, what has God done in your life? And I tell him about something that happened when I was 12 years old. Well, like what happened? Has God been dead for 25 years or on holiday or on vacation? Like, like how come, right? How come they have nothing to say for the last 25 years uh, of, of, uh, of my life? And so we've all agreed together that we're going to uh, work towards having a, a like living relationship with a living God day to day. Um, and to know to know him more day to day, um, and to appreciate him more every day. Um, and then we finished by taking a survey of sort of uh, what people felt were the most poignant kind of questions, the the, the questions that were really you know the most the biggest uh, issues. And the the four that came to the forefront were uh, why does God allow suffering? Uh, what about other religions? Does religion do more harm than good? And is faith irrational? So, um, so I agreed that I would prepare uh, around um, those questions, and that we would, uh, you know, have a you know discussion about around them. Um, so I'm I'm really open and willing. Just jump in. Just chime in if you have any. Uh, you know, uh, questions, comments, objections. Don't, don't uh, let this be a two-way conversation uh, as much as possible. Um, I want to start with a story. Uh, in 2012 uh, or end of 2011, something like that, I was doing my final year of training, and uh, I was like the chief pediatric surgery fellow, and we, we were in charge of. Uh, pediatric trauma as well at sick kids, so all the accidents and uh, you know in injuries that happen to children, major injuries that happen to children. A kid falls, breaks their leg, 
that's none of my business. No, multi-system trauma, you know, brain trauma uh, with chest trauma, abdominal trauma, broken bones, like the whole thing together and how to manage all of this complex trauma and what needs to be fixed first and, you know, in order to sort of save the kid's life and preserve as much function and stuff like that. So uh, standing, I just finished a, a really long day in the operating room with the, one of the surgeons that I loved operating with who happened to be the chief of trauma. So we're standing at Starbucks inside the hospital, just grabbing a coffee at the end of like a really long day. We'd been on our feet for like eight hours. So we're standing at the coffee condiments thing and stirring some Splenda into my coffee or something. And we see the head of ICU running, running by us into the emergency room. So, uh, you know, stopped and asked her what's, what, what's going on. And she says, oh, there's a VSA in the ER. A VSA is uh, vital signs absent. Um, uh, so my boss looked at her, he goes, is that a trauma? She said, yes. So neither of us were on call for trauma, so our pagers hadn't rung. So we figured, let's just go and see one of my colleagues that I directly supervised. He was the one in, who should be in charge. So we just walked in and, you know, we went. Uh, so this family was uh, two families, two moms with their kids were out for the day, sunny afternoon, uh, and uh, got... Um, hit by a car. The kid in the stroller, um, the stroller acts kind of like a cage, so the car hit the, hits the cage and the kid is strapped in in the cage, so the, the cage rolls, kind of like playing, a, what is it, bubble soccer? You know what I mean? Like you're in like the bubble, right? So nothing happens to the, surprisingly, the stroller goes flying, but nothing happens to the kid. Uh, the mom was okay, uh, but uh, the four-year-old, um, uh, had uh, was doing really bad, and the moment they entered the emergency department, uh, she uh, or in the or in the ambulance or something, she uh, lost her vital signs, like she was dead. So we spent about 45 to 50 minutes resuscitating her. We did everything under the sun, short of of, of cut her open in the emergency department, um, with very low chance of survival, like. And she died. So afterward, uh, my boss and I went around to everybody in, in, the, on, in the emergency department on the team and, you know, made sure they were okay, debriefed with them and, you know, made sure they didn't feel like this was their fault and, and so on. And, and, and my boss looked, I asked me, you know, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay. And, and then we kind of parted ways. He went to his office and I just went to the closest uh, single person washroom closed the door and I called uh, Mary, my wife, and I screamed and cried for about 20 minutes. Four-year-olds are not supposed to die. Four-year-olds are supposed to run around and be mischievous and naughty and, and play and have fun. Four-year-olds are not Four-year-olds are not supposed to die. And it sucks when, like, you know, uh, an 87-year-old man, you know, dies of, uh, you know... Uh, colon cancer or, or something like that really sucks, you know, and that 87-year-old man is a father and a husband and a grandfather and, and a friend and a colleague and a brother and lots of people care about him and so on. But a four-year-old, like they have a whole life ahead of them. I don't know, that just broke me. And, um, and I'm sure you all have your own stories, right? And we all have our own stories of things we see in the world, in our own lives, 
in the lives of people around us, um, in the lives of, of, uh, of our family, our friends, um, uh, on the news, that just things that just shouldn't happen, you know? Things that are just, and those questions, they, th- th- those, those events, it's almost like they shout to heaven and say, if there is a good God out there, then why? And so we'll start with that question, you know, why does a God allow suffering? It's the most common objection to Christianity and the greatest challenge to our Christian faith. Personally, professionally, for some, for some people, um, you know, socially, relationally, uh, and just philosophically, like it's, it's just so, it can, it can really shake you to your core. I know more people who are self-proclaimed atheists because they couldn't answer this question than I know people who are self-proclaimed atheists for any other reason. And the issue is that the distribution and degree of pain in this world seems random and highly unfair. Like, why was I born to a relatively privileged family, you know, etc., etc.? Why wasn't I the one born, you know, in the middle of a, you know, of a guerrilla, guerrilla warfare, you know, somewhere in the third world? Why was I born into a family or born to people who are never, have never and will never, you know, wonder whether their drinking water is safe, you know? Why? How come? Right, and we can see, and we see suffering on a global level. You know, uh, famines, wars, uh, plagues. You know, Ebola in West Africa, like just out of nowhere. You know what I mean? It would seem right on a community level. You know, uh, September eleventh, two thousand and one, three thousand people died. Three hundred and forty-six of them were firefighters. You know, um, why? Why? And if there is a good God out there, is he not like, you know, is he not more powerful than jumbo jets or, or, or other people that have? So these things kind of, they really, they really shake us. But then there's also personal suffering. Uh, Pope John Paul II says that Suffering is inseparable from our human existence. If you, have, if you are living an honest life, you are confronting suffering for, on, on a daily basis. <sighs> yeah, but, you know, bereavement, disability, unhappy marriages, poverty, loneliness, persecution, unemployment, right? Suffering. There's lots of suffering. Lots of people are suffering. Every single one of us is likely to suffer. These days I'm doing a money series, like a series about money and how to be faithful in money and so on at my local, uh, at our local church. And, and I was, you know, as one of the things trying to convince people to have, you know, to save and have an emergency fund, a good old rainy day fund, money that's just available to you if you need it. Uh, money that you don't get penalized for, money that's not an investment because investments go down and they go back up again. So if it goes down, 
You're going to say, well, I don't want to spend it now. I'll take out my credit and so on. Take out money on my credit. 79% um, of us will encounter one major negative event in our lives every 10 years. That's four out of five people. I mean, highly likely, you know? Like, and I'm not talking about like, you know, like, you know, breaking my nail or, or having a bad hair day. I'm talking about like somebody dying, getting into a major car crash, losing, a, losing unexpectedly losing a job, stuff like that, you know? So this stuff happens, right? And this is only a problem for Judeo-Christian religions where God is understood to be an, an all-good God and an all-powerful God. If, if there's a multitude of gods, and some of which are good and some of which are not, or, or, or some of which are petty and some of which are benevolent, it's not a problem. Um, if, uh, if you believe in a severe God who is um, you know, very much um, a God of retribution, then also it's not a problem. But if you believe in this all-good, all-powerful God, it's a big problem. Like C.S. Lewis says, like, if God is good, then he would want all his creatures to live well. If God is all-powerful, then he would be able to do it. But if God is good and all-powerful, then how come there's still suffering? Um, that's from his book um, on the problem of pain. And there's no simple answer. I'm, I'm going to be just frank with you. There's no real simple answer. Um, there's no, nowhere in the Bible where you're going to find just a, oh yeah, oh that's right, I missed that chapter. Right? No. Um, and people have been discussing this question for generations. Every generation has struggled with this question because every generation has struggled with pain. Yes. So it means, according to your knowledge, there's a verse in the Holy Bible say, according to your knowledge, you'll be judged. Sometimes, according to the suffer, it makes a person get something more pure, more perfect. Yes, I completely agree, and I'll, I'll, I'll address that. Um, I'll address that a little bit as well. So let's, the Bible is a practical book. It's not a, it's not a philosophy book. So let's, let's, um, let's look at, a, at sort of four major insights that will hopefully kind of give us, uh, you know, some, some food for thought when we're thinking about suffering. The first is about, uh, is all in the department of human freedom. Um, suffering is not God's original plan. When you look at God's original plan in Genesis 1 and 2, um, there was no suffering. And when you look at, at God's end, his end game, like where is he going at the end of this, at the end of all of this, he's going uh, to, in Revelation chapter 21, he's going to a place where there is no pain and there is no suffering and there is uh, no sickness and there is no death. Right, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and so on. So obviously, God did not design suffer suffering and pain. That was not 
really part of his design. However, God is really good at adapting. He's really good at um, adapting to our, to our freedom. And the root cause of, of all pain and all suffering is choice, right? You choose one thing over another and, you know, that, you know, if it's, may produce suffering. Um, and you could ask the question, well, why, why would a good God allow us to sin? You're going to say, well, okay, like if sin is the cause of suffering, well, why doesn't God just make it so that we can't, why we can't sin? Well, because God created us to love him. He created us out of love and to love him in return. So if we're going to love him, we have to love him freely because love is not love if it's not free. can't be by coercion. Uh, when we, uh, a couple gets engaged, one of the, you know, the things we make them initial next to is this relationship is not, you know, by coercion or by why, you know, you're not forced, you're not being, you know, you're doing this really out of your own, out of your own free will. Yes. Yes. And 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 then C.S. Lewis also says, also in the problem of pain, he says that we can't have free will without having consequences. Because if every time I make a decision, then God interferes and annuls the consequences, then none of my decisions matter. So I wouldn't ever be able to make a decision about anything of any importance in life, right? Suppose, just suppose you want to buy a new car. You walk into the car dealership and you've finally decided you're going to get a BMW 3 Series. So you walk into the BMW you know, dealership and you sign the papers and they give you the keys and you, know, you press the, you know, the, the little button on the keychain thing, the remote entry button, right? And like the lights on a Chrysler blink, you know? He'll be very, uh, yeah, I don't have anything against Chrysler, but like you signed up for a BMW. You're going to walk back in. You're going to say, hey, I think you gave me the wrong keys, right? And they'll be like, no, 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 those are the, it's the right ones and so on, right? So you say, forget this. You leave. You go to a different dealership. The same thing happens again. You go to another dealership. The same thing happens again. Basically, you don't have a choice. You can sign whatever papers for whatever. You can choose whatever you're going to choose, but it doesn't matter because your choices don't make a difference, right? So that would never work. It would never work for God to interfere every time a decision is made and annul the consequences for the sake of better, better consequences. We, we wouldn't have, we would have no freedom, right? So suffering can be seen sometimes as a product of our own choices. And it's very, very, very important for us to realize that this is only one of the ways in which suffering can be seen. Oftentimes, um, we, put too, we put too much emphasis on this. But it, it, is, it is true that in this life, God sometimes does judge sin very overtly and very obviously, like the flood, Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the sin of Achan and Jericho, and he took... For, from the things that were supposed to be only for the temple and so on. Sometimes suffering is due to other people's choices, right? Um, 
And again, here we have to be really careful because we can easily start pointing fingers. Um, and that's exactly what happened with Job and his friends. His friends came and they spend like what, like about 38 chapters or so, you know, maybe a little less, trying to convince him that he did something wrong and that's why all this bad stuff is happening to him. Uh, and, and God hates that, you know. Um, even uh, the disciples of Jesus in John 9, they tell him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus tells them, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God may be revealed in him or glorified in him, depending on the version that you read, right? And in Luke 13, they, uh, they ask Jesus about a tower that fell or some current events, you know, and, uh, you know, were they, were they such wicked people and that's why that happened to them? And Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish, right? So, obviously, Jesus is not into us pointing at other people and saying bad stuff is happening to them because they're bad people. Um, that doesn't seem to be something that he, that, that, that he really appreciates. However, suffering can happen because of other people's choices. St. Peter discriminates about this in, in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Talks about if you suffer because you've done wrong. Well it's good that you suffer. Um, in a certain sense. And that you learn. He's talking here about like, like, a, like if you do something wrong and you get punished for it. You know. It's good that you suffer and you learn from your mistakes and you stop doing that. But if you suffer and you haven't done anything wrong and you accept it joyfully, he says that that brings a lot of glory to God. I've shared this before, but I don't think here in this context. I had a really beautiful opportunity to sit with one of the Anchorite fathers, you know, like Soweh. So he's sitting with us, a group of small priests, and he was talking with us. And uh, one of the priests asked him a question. He told him, you know, uh, Abuna, uh, oftentimes it's the children of the priests that are like the worst kids in the church, right? So how, what can we do to prevent our own biological children from being lost? So he laughed. He said, I'm a monk. Like, what would I know? What do I know about raising children, right? Uh, and then he went kind of quiet. And then he said, you know, no, actually, actually, hold on a second. He said... I remember, um, I remember an old saintly. Uh, I remember an old saintly man, and he had three sons, and they were all angels. And what he taught them was this: he taught them that there are only three things that are pleasing to God. Like we think that God is pleased with everything under the sun. This is a lie. You know, God is not any more. You know, as much as you have a favorite flavor of ice cream or you, you you know as much as you are a discriminating human being created in the image and likeness of God God is also able to discern right and there are three things that are very pleasing to God monastic obedience but not all of us are called to monasticism some of us certainly are not um, to do all our works in all our life in purity and holiness well you know that's not going to happen for me. Uh, I have a few strikes already, right? And the last thing is to accept persecution and illness with thanksgiving. Um, and that's tough. That's really tough. 
But that's what St. Peter is talking about in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you suffer because you did something wrong, like it's not a bad thing that you suffer and you learn from your mistakes and it forces you to, 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 be, to repent and it forces you, it breaks you a little bit and it, it breaks my pride before God and that's a good thing. But if I suffer when I haven't done anything wrong and I receive it with thanksgiving, now that is extremely pleasing to God. In fact, there is um, uh, this uh, professor at Princeton, I can't remember his name, who was agnostic, and somehow he got into studying the lives of the saints. And that's what, what convinced him to become Christian. When he saw how much grace um, the saints accepted suffering with, particularly the martyrs, you know, how they accepted the, the ill intention and the ill actions of others so gracefully, um, that really, that was, that was in and of itself enough to convince him that this, there's something different going on here. So when it comes to suffering that is due to other people's sins, we should examine our own hearts but not really judge others because that doesn't really go over very well. Guilt, whether we feel guilty and we think that the suffering in my life is due to my own sins and that makes me feel very guilty, that's not going to lead me anywhere good. And if I'm accusing other people, well, that guy is sick, that guy got cancer because he's such a bad person and he deserves it and so on, well, that's not going to get me anywhere good either. So um, all things considered, guilt and accusation, I should just stay away from both of those. But that said, a lot of the suffering in this world is caused by other people's actions, right? Um, the first sentence in any trauma textbook, sorry, I make reference to my past life a lot, right? But the first sentence in any trauma te textbook is, trauma is a social illness, period. It is completely preventable, period. You know? The number one cause of death in 25 to 40 year olds is trauma, injuries. Car accidents, mostly. Completely preventable, right? It's a social illness. It has to do with how people treat people and how people behave, right? War, starvation, occupational hazards, occupational injuries, right? It's all, it's all, it's all other people's actions. Individual suffering is almost always caused by someone else's sin. It's said, I, I don't know where this number came from, but it's said that 95% of the world's suffering is probably directly due to somebody else's decision. So that's another source of suffering. This is all kind of in the under, still under the free will kind of heading, right? And then a more kind of essential reason for suffering is that we're in a fallen world. And the world we're in just, just ticks this way. And it ticks this way because, because of sin, because of the decisions that our forefathers and mothers, Adam and Eve, if you want, chose. But honestly, if they hadn't eaten from the tree, I commonly say I probably would have eaten from the tree. If everybody from generation to generation, you know, and you know, hundreds of generations managed to stick by the straight and narrow, I'm sure I'm the one who would have messed it up for everybody, you know? So this idea of blaming Adam and Eve for our fallenness 
specifically like you know the the persons Adam and Eve, right? So we often talk about Adam and Eve as being sort of the 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 icons of humanity, you know, rather than um, you know their specific, specific sin of those specific people. Now I want to address something else. Is a little bit what my friend was saying here about how God works through suffering. C.S. Lewis also in the problem of pain talks about how. Uh, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And the world may not listen. Um, and the, they may take the pain and they may hate God more for it. But God has, God has a responsibility to do everything that he can to try to, 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 bring, us, um, to, try to bring us to our senses to know him. Uh, in Hebrews 5.8 says that even Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So, like, even the Son of God, as fully God and fully human, was not uh, immune to the suffering that we suffer. In Hebrews 12, talks a little bit about discipline, and how, um, like, every father, every parent, disciplines their children if they love them. Right? So sometimes... Sometimes this can apply to the suffering that we, that we experience in life. But all of these things are not to be taken out of context. None of these things can explain every bad thing that happens to any person ever. Right? St. Peter talks about suffering as refining us in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. Right, so the how the refiner sits by the fire and he refines the silver and the gold in the fire. Right, suffering can make our lives more fruitful. Like it, like Jesus says in John 15. Right, a vine will be more fruitful if you prune away the branches that are just that have no fruit. Right, so sometimes suffering causes us to to abandon certain things in our lives because there was no action happening there anyways. Uh, in those parts of our lives. And so that's a, that, that can lead to a good thing, right? The example that my uh, friend gave about like, you know, an olive doesn't liquefy of itself unless it's crushed. A grape, the same thing. Lavender, you know, you, produces the fullness of its fragrance only when it is crushed. Oranges bring out their sweetness when they're, when they're also, also when they're crushed. So, there's something to be, there's certainly something to be said, something uh, to be said for suffering. Uh, I read this a long time ago and I've been looking for it ever since. So if any of you have read it so I could have a reference for it, I'd be so happy if you, if you, if you could tell me, Buna maybe, right? One of, this, one of the fathers, and I can't remember who, uh, says that a day without suffering is a day that would have been better not lived. Because suffering brings us closer to Christ. And there's something also regarding the goal. One day, when I said to my fellow Christians, and I explained something for him, do you know how he's inside the goal? Where does he put the goal inside the fire? There are different ages of the goal, right? There's like 19, 1, and then 24. Each one has a certain amount of silver. So, so you put it inside the fire and then bring it out at a certain time. If it lifts, if you ask me one, you can ask me later, but you can show if it lifts, 
maybe 15 seconds or more, it will be burned. That is God usually. Take us outside the problem, even if someone inside suffering, get us outside the problem at a certain time before we leave. Thank you very much. Um, and a nice verse to th always to think of, like when you're thinking about that, is 1 Corinthians 13.10. Um, and I have a bit of a beef with this verse, because people take the middle part of the verse, and they don't take the first part of the verse, nor the last part of the verse. And nothing makes sense if you take one sentence out of context. It doesn't make sense anymore, right? So sorry, it's 1 Corinthians 10.13. Uh, so I said that backwards. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now temptation has, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. There are three statements in this verse. So the first one is saying, no temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man. The first feeling that I feel when I'm going through suffering is, how come? Why me? Right? As if I'm the first person in the whole wide world to ever go through this this scenario. I'm the first person in the whole wide world to ever fail an exam. I'm the first person in the whole wide world to ever get dumped. I'm the first person in the whole wide world to ever lose a job. I'm the first person in the whole wide world to ever, uh, you know, uh, get whatever disappointment that I'm going to get. I'm the first person in the whole wide world to be unjustly accused. The reality is, if you think of most of those things, you can apply to Jesus like this. Some of them, you know, you need to think a little bit before you can think to yourself how Jesus, you know, could have experienced something like a, like a job loss. You know, like, well, you know, I don't know, he's a carpenter, but it's not written anywhere they got laid off or something, you know, like they ran out of wood or I, like, you know, uh, right? Uh, but, you know, he was the only, he grew up being the only son of a widow. Like, widows were not really employable, so... He was basically like relegated to beg, you know, St. Mary to beg and Jesus to beg because St. Joseph passed away probably when Jesus was in his early teens. So no temptation has overtaken you such, as, such as is common to man, right? The second statement, which is the one we always quote all the time, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So we all often quote the second part in the middle, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Right? That's something we say all the time. Right? But St. Paul follows that up and he says... But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So anytime you encounter pain, you encounter suffering, you encounter temptation, whether it's of your own doing or not, start looking for the exit signs. Right? So, uh, like, again, in my past life in surgery, um, when we'd be doing an operation, there would always be a point of no return. There's always, like... You can open somebody else in you up and you can close them up again, right? But once you cut like this artery, once you cut this blood vessel, that's it. You're committed. You have to take that organ out or you have to whatever. Like you can't just kind of bail, you know? You've passed, you're on the highway and you've passed the last exit. So you have to go to the destination. You've got nowhere else to go, right? St. Paul is telling us that when there's pain, when there's suffering, there's always an exit sign, right? Right? Look for the exits.
Because God has provided one. Right? Don't necessarily look for the easiest exit or the most convenient exit, but look for the exits because God has provided one. Right? So we need to take this, this, this verse in, 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 in all three parts of it. You're not the first person to go through this, really alluding to the fact that Jesus himself has gone through it and is going through it with you now. God is faithful and will not tempt you with more than what you're able, you know, to be tempted. Although the word temptation here is more relating to a trial because St. James tells us God does not tempt us like the temptation that leads to sin. We could talk about what's the difference between temptations and trials if you want. And the third thing is, if God allows a trial in your life, God will make an escape. So, so that's a little bit about the, the redemptive side of suffering. And so much so that maybe one of the fathers, although I can't find the reference, um, says that you know, our life on earth, we're here so that we can be refined, so that we can be pruned, so that we can be the best that we can be for, for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, a really close relative of mine went through a series of horrible events all in one go, and she's given me permission to share her story. Um, she's around my sister's age, so make her uh, close to 40 now. Um, and um, she, uh, within the span of like two years, like every bad thing that you can imagine that can happen to somebody happened to her. Um, uh, her, our grandmother died. She's a first cousin of mine. So her, our grandmother passed away. And our grandmother like raised her and her brother. So like she was as close to our grandmother as she was to, to uh, her mom. Um, and then I think six months or 11 months or 10 months later something, her dad died. He just got a, a clot in his leg which fired up to his lungs. He, just, he was at work. He's a pharmacist. He was at work. Just dropped dead behind the counter. Um, took him to the hospital and so on, but he was gone. Um, her boyfriend of five years said like... I can't handle this anymore. So he broke up with her. And then she got, and I think between the death of the grandmother and the, her father, she got diagnosed with MS. And she's had multiple, uh, multiple, uh, multiple sclerosis, and she's had multiple bouts of her MS recurrences. Um, and she lives in daily in fear. Like she will wake up in the morning and be paralyzed in one leg, but not realize until she tries to get out of bed and like falls, falls because she's expecting to land on two feet. She only lands on one, you know. Um, she woke up one morning blind in one eye. Um, and thank God she's had a good recovery from most, of these, from most of these things, but not perfect. She still walks with a limp. Her vision is, is, is pretty good. It's better. Her mom is extremely ill uh, and highly dependent on her. Her life basically is between taking care of her mom and, 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 and her, her brother. Um, uh, anyone who would see her uh, on the outside, if you bumped into her at the mall or at church or this or that, you think she lived a great life. Most of the time she's laughing. She has 
really hard days and bad days. She says, I live in a constant fear of what ne- what's the next, you know, what's, what's MS going to bring me next. Um, but if you ask her, she'll tell you the best thing that ever happened to me in the whole wide world was those two years. Because, and, 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 and I don't say this lightly, like these are her, her actual her actual words. And she says, because, she says, I always knew that God was there, but I never knew that he cared about me. And it's only when I had lost everything, thought I lost everything, and then continued to lose things and people and health, and that I really experienced God's care for me. And at this point, she says in her life, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up knowing that God cares for me. I wouldn't give that up even to have all of these things back. Although I, I really wish I could have all of these things back, but not at the cost of knowing that He cares for me. So there is some redemption. There is some redemption in suffering. I'll close with this. Um, uh, one of the priests in the area kept asking me to go pray a, a liturgy with him, you know, just out of brotherly love. So I went and prayed with him. And when I was there, he gave me this, uh, this set, like this matching set of cross, pectoral cross and hand cross, right? And, um, like, I really liked it, right? And I found myself sitting and sitting, listening to people's stories. And honestly, I'm a wimp. Like, I could stand here and say all this stuff, but if I went through 1% of the stuff that peop- I hear people telling me that they're going through, oh my goodness, I don't know, I- I'm a wimp. You know, I don't think I could handle it, right? And I know that God gives grace, like, you know, when we need it and so on. But, um, but I found myself oftentimes reflecting while people are telling me their stories on the fact that the... On this cross is Jesus crucified on one side and him resurrected on the other, you know? And I remember reading a very uh, nice contemplation. It's not like a, you know, it's not like church doctrine or something. Um, Although it's a fact. Um, In your Bible, if you flip to John 21, you know, and if your Bible has those those little subject headings, John 20, sorry, the top of John 20, the little subject heading for the chapter in my book, in my Bible says, the empty tomb. But the tomb wasn't empty. The tomb had stuff in it. It had the grave clothes in it. And the grave clothes were folded carefully, and they were there. They were testifying to the fact that Jesus had died and rose again. The, the greatest piece of proof that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead to his disciples, not to Mary Magdalene who, and the Marys who saw the angels and so on, but to the disciples, to St. John, St. Peter, when they run after St. Mary Magdalene, they go to the tomb and they look inside, was that the grave clothes were there. Grave robbers at the time, they robbed graves for two things. One, for the jewels that people would be buried with. Sometimes they'd bury you with your jewels if they, if they believed that you would be reincarnated or resurrected or whatever somewhere else and you got to have them. So they bury you with them. And the grave clothes. The grave clothes were typically linen. They were typically expensive and there was typically a lot of it. So if anybody stole 
Jesus' body, like no grave robber in his right mind would have left the grave clothes. And if he did, he wasn't going to sit there and fold them carefully and put them all carefully and the handkerchief around the, by the, on the, that was on the head by the side and so on. The disciples, when they saw that, right, they realized something, you know, odd is happening here. The message of the resurrection, arguably to a Christian, the best good news that it ever is or ever was or ever will be is found in a tomb. And the best good news in my life, the best good news in the life of my cousin was found in the tomb her life. So, I know um, it's easy to preach, and it's easy to talk, and it's easy to, you know, um, but maybe we can, we, we can encourage each other and be encouraged with some of these words. I'll finish with one final note. I mentioned that I know more people who are, say they're atheists, because of this problem of pain and problem of suffering than anything, any other thing I know. Every single person actually who's atheist that I've had the, the pleasure and the privilege of sitting and listening to for endless hours, hours upon hours upon, upon hours, will eventually come to this question. I'm not saying that every atheist out there, I'm just saying the ones that I have met and I've had the opportunity to enter into a relationship with. And I don't know, like if I read this in a book or, or God just guided me to this approach, but that has become my approach with people who are angry, indignant against an almighty God who just chooses not to end their suffering or the sufferings of others, is to listen and to love them and to receive them. And not to fight back. Not to answer questions. Just to listen. To ask questions. Sometimes to ask questions. To draw people out more. And I listen. 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 And I choose willfully through praying for the person in, uh, when I'm alone. And through listening when I'm with them. To accompany this person in their suffering. In no ways like, am I fit in any way to compare myself to, to the Lord. But that's what Jesus did with us, right? His, salv his salvation model is an incarnational model. He doesn't, from heaven, He doesn't just holler down to us what we should be doing. But He comes and joins us, becomes one with us, walks the way with us. So this has become my, my approach to, to dealing with this question when I'm dealing with this question with others. I don't, I don't tell them my sermon because someone who's deeply hurting doesn't care two pence for the sermon, you know. I just listen to them and accompany them in their suffering until, until one day they see that in all of this suffering, 
there's still a very deep love. Glory be to God forever.